Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the Mobilities and Methods channel of the New Books Network. My name is Josephine Chet, and I am joined today by Dr. Harrison Guthern. Dr. Guthern is a strategic leader at EAB in Washington, D.C., specializing in public and private institutions. He completed his Ph.D. at the University of Maryland College Park in 2015, and in addition to various research roles, he has worked as a lecturer of modern Middle East history at the University of Virginia and the University of Maryland. I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Guthern to the New Books Network today to, to discuss his forthcoming book, Capital Development, uh, Modern Era Mon and the Construction of the Hashemite State, 1921 to 1946. The book presents the history of Amman's development under the rule of the British Mandate from 1921 to 1946 and explores how the growth of the Anglo Hashemite State imbued the city with physical, political, and symbolic significance. So, Dr. Guthern, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Josephine. Great. Well, before getting into the details of the text, I was wondering if you might first talk a little bit about the genesis of the project and how you came to focus on Mandate Era Mon. Sure, be happy to. It, you know, I feel like this is the case for most people's first big project, is it's always a winding road. It was when I first started studying, you know, the modern Middle East when I was an undergrad at Cornell. I was quickly drawn to Jordan just because of it, you know, quote unquote, came out of nothing, that there weren't historical antecedents. There was obviously the Ottoman Empire, and there were all of these different networks of how this land connected to other adjoining spaces. But there wasn't a really clear rationale for why this nation state should exist as it's currently drawn on the map. And that was my starting point. So I started really more looking at kind of nationalism and the ideas of Jordanian nationalism. But as I dug into it, I kind of took a step back from that because most of the work on Jordanian nationalism really focuses on the 50s and the 60s primarily, and was struck by when you look at the mandate period that there had been a lot of important work done, but most of the work really was focused on a particular theme or perspective that looked at the mandate but didn't necessarily overlap with other areas. So, for example, Michael Fishbach's you know, wonderful work, which was on land and land settlement, and it focused on land, but it didn't talk about you know, where that settlement was actually taking place. Or you had... Uh, Joseph Massad's work focusing on the military and the judicial system. But again, you know, I kept focusing or coming back to the question of locality and that where things took place mattered. And as I dug into it, I was frankly really surprised to find that there hadn't been a book on the history of Amman during the mandate period. And the simple fact that it didn't exist was really the impetus for the project of going, here's this really wide lane that I can, you know, kind of dive into. Mm -hmm. Definitely. We were talking before we started recording this morning that that is the sort of beauty of studying Jordan and Amman specifically, is that there isn't always a lot of work. So you have this freedom to kind of really explore things and, and open up new 
studies and introduce topics to people uh, to people that they they are not familiar with because that that scholarship doesn't necessarily exist. So, yeah, absolutely, and it and it gave a really fun opportunity to also do exploration by contrast because mm. you have obviously Transjordan as a British mandate and you have Iraq and Palestine on either side of it. Mm-hmm. And then seeing, you know, where are their similarities, where are there really huge differences and why do those differences exist and what do those differences mean over the history of the mandate? Right. Well, that sets up perfectly the first sort of question that I have, which is about the fundamental argument of the text. And it rests on this idea that the construction of the Hashemite state during the Mandate era can be understood, as you say, from the inside out, that focusing on the development of the capital city of Amman is really revealing for understanding Mandate era Jordan, Transjordan. And specifically, you suggest that Amman contends with the crisis of identity rooted in how it grew to become a symbol for the Anglo Hashemite government first and a city second. And I'll just quote part of the text, which is that the overall urban fabric of Amman during the mandate period depicts a city that is very much a part of the Transjordanian government, while at the same time managing to operate as a space independent from official control. Mandate Amman was the material manifestation of colonial compromise and shortcomings. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the central argument of the book and expand on that a bit. Absolutely. The point that I, you know, as I dove into doing more of my research, both in the UK and in Jordan, the thing that kept standing out to me was that everything happened in Amman, yet there was very little discussion about what Amman actually looked like, or what were the spaces in Amman that this was all happening. That, you know, every every official British communique obviously was either earmarked from coming from Amman or potentially from Jerusalem, depending upon who it was coming from. And the space, or the symbol of Amman, I should say, became more and more important. And the central argument of the book is that the development of the capital city of Amman is a mirror for the development of the state. And that as one went, so went the other. And simply put, all roads led to Amman. And the fact that Amman gathered this centrality and this symbolic importance was all the more stark because it wasn't a capital city before the mandate period. When you compare it to its Levantine counterparts, you know, Damascus and Beirut and Jerusalem, these were all cities that had importance unto themselves before they were the focal points of the mandate. Whereas Amman is the only city that's truly developed and created almost from nothing during the mandate period in under-colonial oversight. And that point of both construction and friction meant that there were a number of different stories that kind of are elucidated by the growth of the city itself. Definitely. And um, the idea that Amman as a built environment is very much related to the way in which the colonial government works is something that I hope we can come back to in a few minutes, because I think, you know, as as folks who have been to Amman 
can understand it sort of unfolds in this tangled sprawl. And so it doesn't often feel like a cohesive, clearly defined city. So I hope we can come back to that a little bit. But before we do, this is a channel on the New Books Network specifically focused on methods and mobility. So I was hoping we could talk a bit about the methods that you used. And I know in the text you mentioned, of course, you did considerable archival research at the British National Archives, the Jordanian National Library, the Jordanian Parliamentary Library, and um, even the, the Library of Congress's African and Middle East Reading Room. And I was wondering um, if there was anything that you found that you expected to find but did not find during your research or the opposite, things that you didn't expect to find but did, hiccups to the process of doing research in the archives, either in the British National Archives or in Jordan, um, that influenced what the project became. Yeah. I, it's funny hearing you say of like things that I expected and didn't expect. Simply put, I expected to find a whole lot more about the development of Amman. I expected to find an urban plan. I expected to find urban regulations and neighborhood plans and you know that kind of big brother colonial oversight of what a capital city should look like. I kind of came into it having the conception that this was going to look like French colonial cities where you know this was going to be more akin to Beirut or Damascus during the French mandate than what it turns out was done in Amman. And you know, as I did my research, I saw that there was a very clear distinction between French colonial urban policy and British colonial urban policy. You know, simply put, of uh, the British didn't want to really spend money on it, so every, their choices were much more utilitarian. But because I didn't find that at the onset of the project, you know, way back before I even had done my prospectus research. I thought this was going to be more of a true, like full on urban study. You know, looking section by section of this of the city, what did one section develop like? What did another develop like? What are those intersections? What are their stories? And I simply didn't find a lot of that. And it's not to say that, you know, there could be private paper collections that I didn't quite find. I I remember distinctly going to the University of Jordan's library back in 2012 when I was doing my prospectus research and just being told repeatedly things didn't exist. Uh, yes. <laughs> and then finding out from other scholars or you know colleagues, you know, no, it does exist. You need to talk to this person. It's in this place. You know, don't believe that. You, you know, oh, you came in as the loud American just expecting things to appear because you wanted them to and didn't understand things take time. You have to build your network. You have Someone has to understand who you are, not just some random guy off the street. And that took time. <laughs> um, you know, getting into the parliamentary library, as an example, was its own saga because what ended up being really critical documents for my book were the minutes from the Legislative Council. And at the National Library, which is great in that you can walk in, you know, 
they ask you who you are, you just write Talib, and they don't really care anything further than that. But at the same time, if it's not on the shelves, they're just like, man, it doesn't exist. Or we don't have it because it's a you know an archive that only started collecting a couple of decades ago instead of you know a hundred years ago. So I fi- found out through talking to people that you know those records were at the parliamentary library, but to get in, you needed to either be a Jordanian citizen or have your ekama, and an ekama is your Jordanian residency permit, and it takes a number of months for you to get that. So. I was just kind of in this nebulous space in between. And when I finally got there, all of the minutes from the Legislative Council after 1929 are typed. However, the minutes in 1929 were all shorthand by scribes. And this shorthand, I certainly couldn't read. I talked with Jordanian friends, colleagues, and no one could read this. And eventually, through it took me about a month and a half, I found someone who could transcribe just the handwriting into a typed page so that I actually could read it and translate it. But that was its own saga just to be able to get to the meat of that material. Right. Yeah. I, I love hearing people's like archive stories <laughs> and the, the it doesn't exist narrative feels very familiar. It was something, every archive that I went to, like public institutions, like the National Library, you know, more private sort of um, like little libraries always told me, we don't have women's history here. That's not a thing. You know, no one collects that. And it, it was a lot of trial and error to sort of find any sources that were relevant to creating like a historical narrative for the things that I was interested in. So it's funny to hear that that narrative repeats kind of no matter what you're interested in. And I mean, from the other side of it, though, the British National or the British National Archives at Kew are wonderful. They are a purely digital you know, experience of you have to go to your computer terminal, you request something, it shows up in your assigned box cube. I remember I was seat G26 for the two months I was there. And it just shows up in the box. But the problem with that is because they've pivoted their resources to being digital friendly, there aren't as many people who actually know the records themselves. So you're really, it felt more that you were on your own to find things. Whereas I would pivot and say my experience of the National Archives in the US or the Library of Congress is that people knew the collection a little bit more, though it may be harder to actually put your hands on something. So it's just, you know, that different experience, not one necessarily better than the other, just different. Right. But um, yeah, but it's, it's always nice to hear the ways, especially the ways that, you know, different archives operate differently and finding stuff um, works. But the, the idea like that, that we don't have that history, it doesn't exist. And having to build your networks to find it resonates very much, I think, with most people's experience of archive research anywhere, but um, in Jordan specifically. <laughs> right. Certainly. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, and then the last sort of general thing that I wanted to touch on before we move into some specifics is a question of theoretical contribution. And you state that Um, By focusing on urban change in Amman, facilitated by its institutional and infrastructural centrality, 
That provides an excellent opportunity to highlight the importance of locality and transnational political and cultural forces in the development of the modern Middle East. And I was wondering if you might expand on this a little bit to discuss how your project contributes to and or expands urban studies in the Middle East. So when I was looking at Amman, I wanted to make sure I wasn't looking at Amman in a vacuum. It wasn't meant to be just, you know, I'm obviously talking about the development of the Jordanian state and that interaction between the British and the Hashemites and the local elites that they're interacting and working with. But because you know, the mandate of Transjordan is, you know, shorn from the Palestine mandate, it's a territory that hadn't been bound in this way ever before. All of these networks that are connecting people cross what we see as nation state lines and understanding where families are coming from, who they have traditional ties with, how they understand themselves, how they understand kind of power dynamics within the region really informs the way that people act or kind of the normal expectations that people had. And in particular, you know, tracing what the traditional trading partners were. I mean, you know, like that the city of Salt was a traditional partner with um, Nablus, I believe, off the top of my head. I admit I might be misspeaking because it's been a bit for, since I looked at that section of the chapter. Uh, but seeing kind of how you cross the Jordanian, you know, the cross the Jordan River and who those trading partners were, where people were coming from, you know, the development of the merchant class or, you know, who became those urban elites for an urban area that was new. You know, every almost everyone came from somewhere else. Amman was only refounded as a urban, you know, site in 1882 when the Ottomans resettle it with the population of Circassians. And understanding that it's origin point is the late 19th century means if everyone's coming from somewhere else in some fashion, even the Bedouin tribes who had traditional you know, sway in that region, like the Bani Sakhar, it meant that there were all these new dynamics and interconnections that had to be kind of delve, you know, dealt with and then understood that the way people kind of then led to neighborhoods or led to different pockets of the population within the city, that those were all connected with one another. They weren't just mere happenstance. Right. Definitely. Yeah. And as you mentioned in the book and earlier in this conversation, of course, Amman is very different in its genesis than other, other cities like Damascus. People often, you know, highlight its difference to cities like Cairo. It doesn't have that, you know, long-term history. Um, and so it is fascinating the way that you sort of approach it. And then I think particularly the methodological concept of that inside out of like, if we look at the city, we can understand the development of, you know, Transjordan as a whole. As you said, it, it is a mirror for what is going on on a larger scale. And I would say as well, like I, I'm, I'm spending time pointing out its difference. I also stress in the book that Amman, in a lot of ways, is very similar to other Middle Eastern cities. It, you know, the 
separation between traditional neighborhoods and the merchant, you know, the merchant areas, that it was a city that developed around a central water source, that it's, you know, the separation of neighborhoods on based upon the urban topography where, you know, the Hadas, the neighborhoods in Amman are up on the hills. If anyone who's been to Amman knows that there are lots and lots of hills. Uh, but that's very similar to Salt. It's very similar to Beirut. You know, it's not, it's not this city that is completely alien from the other urban sites within the region. And I think frequently people kind of look at Amman and say, oh, it's not like these others. You know, like the anthropologist Setni Shami like famously said, like, Amman is not a city. And she was using it as a way to discuss urban heritage and meaning. But I, I mentioned that in the introduction of my book to say, you know, there is this counter argument. And I you know, want to position Amman very much as a real city, but a real city that has both a similar and dissimilar developments from its counterparts. Yes, absolutely. And certainly part of the, the difference, at least in, in its development, is, as you mentioned earlier in this conversation, the lack of, an, of a distinct urban plan. And that is something that I wanted to talk about a little bit more, is the relationship between Amman is a built environment and colonial governments, because I think that that is a a strong point that comes through in the text. And for people, for folks who have been to Amman, of course, the cityscape doesn't necessarily feel intuitive, kind of sprawls outward from the city center, Al-Balad, in this tangled mess that seems almost to defy logic. And if you look at it, it's not, there is no grid that the city exists on. It is a sort of urban sprawl. And you brought up uh, Santini Shami's argument that the confusion of Amman as a city and the fact that it doesn't always feel like a city is a byproduct of the state's efforts to create itself at the expense of a nation and the city at the expense of urbanism. And you take that sentiment to suggest that these same indictments can be leveled at mandate-era Amman. And so in the introduction, you say that unlike most purpose-built capital cities, which were planned meticulously, Amman was left to develop without government plans, stipulations, or limitations. The choice not to shape the cityscape in Amman was a discrete decision undertaken by the the mandatory state. Transjordan's governmental authority did not rely on the geography and architecture of Amman, but instead it relied on the young government's institutional authority. And so I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit more about the relationship between built environment and colonial governments as it relates to the development of Amman. Sure. From the starting point in the mandate in 1921, Amman is very quickly designated as the capital city of the mandate, but it doesn't mean much. Um, early on, I, I use the framework of talking about the government as you know a series of Potemkin ministries of kind of these hollow edifices that existed in name only, and only over time are they kind of filled in. And the use of Amman is somewhat analogous. In the early days, it's a very small population; it's only around five thousand people um, in 1921, and that continues to grow in step with the development of the government that, you know, 
as there are more governmental machinery put in the city of Amman, it becomes more advantageous for more people to be there, to you know interact with that with that government, with that state. And the state also makes a very, you know, there are very discrete decisions made to centralize the aspects of modern life within the capital city that pulls people from the hinterlands, from outside of Amman into the city itself. That, you know, the decision to have all land disputes adjudicated in, you know, within the Ministry of of lands and in Jabal al-Webde in Amman meant people had to physically come to them. And, you know, you were talking about, you know, the development of the urban space. You know, I, there's a map within the book from 1933 where you can see the naming that that ministry used is where you get a lot of the modern names of parts of the city. You know, that you see the, early mention of Abdun and Shmesani and Jebel Webde and Jebel Aman is in that land registration map, that you know, the cadastral map. And they come to become those neighborhoods. But it's a forcing function. You know, it's the question of where those names just created you know, where do they come from? And I, I can't say, you know, whether there was a particular government official in the 30s who came up with that name or more likely there was some you know, family or some you know broader meaning, but that has become the name of those regions because they're reinforced by that you know by that aspect of the government. And, and to your question of kind of the methodology that I'm using, you know, I purposely choose not to use urban space theory uh, like Lefebvre and and others, largely because those are usually heavily economically imbued, where they might have a Marxist take or, or, or others. And I, I find the work really interesting, but within Amman, because the development of the city wasn't explicitly an economic choice, those theories didn't easily lend themselves to looking at mandate era Amman. So instead, it became more a question of balance and understanding of who is using the space and how. And so that's why you know the central the middle chapters of the book are really looking at you know elite integration into the capital city via the legislative council because of how these people from outside of the capital city are brought in and incorporated into the state machinery and as such also incorporated into the capital city of Amman. Yes, definitely. And that resonates with the the final concept that I found particularly interesting and which resonated a lot with my own research questions of relational politicking and, and how that influences legislative decisions, which is the concept that you discuss as Amman is a gilded cage. And you state early in the text that by the end of the, the mandate, Amman resembled a gilded cage, both constraining and supporting elites within, simultaneously limiting their influence while protecting and reifying their muted authority as Transjordanian officials. The physical space of the city became the stage upon which this performance of prestige and power continuously repeated itself while constantly incorporating new actors. And as you have said a few times, 
times in this conversation, it is that bringing people in into the city and the ways that that influences the sort of legislative council that emerges that you discuss in the fourth and fifth chapter of the book. And particularly throughout the book, this concept of Amman as a gilded cage is linked to the idea of patrimonial networks and the emergence of a legislative system in trans in Transjordan. And the question of elite and tribal influences on legislative direction, as you say, the need to protect influence and authority solely mollified the agendas of the council representatives. It was more important for the elites of Transjordan to be a part of the legislative system than to be ostracized from Transjordan's halls of power, I think is one that continues to hold interest for scholars concerned with contemporary Jordanian politics. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this piece of your argument. Sure. And the the real um, entry point for that argument is the need for the state to, or for the government to have the 1928 Anglo-Transjordanian agreement ratified. This agreement you know, is developed without any Jordanian input uh, to the point that there are comments by um, Chief Secretary Arif al-Arif in his own memoir, he talks with the the head of the council and he talks with Abdullah and like about where is this coming from? And what we would deem the prime minister now or the the head of the executive of the head of the executive committee says, you know, in his notes, like my only role was to sign the agreement in London. I wasn't supposed to have any input. So the agreement comes fully formed and then has to be ratified by a representative council. And early on, it's very much this open question of what power will this legislative council have? Because when you compare it to its Iraqi counterpart, they go through a very similar pattern or a very similar step of the agreement is essentially kind of constructed by the British, brought to the mandate of Iraq and then needs to be passed. But a fundamental difference is in Iraq, the council members have the ability to introduce legislation where after the internal regulations of the council are debated, they are not given that authority. The only authority the legislative council has is to vote up or down, essentially, on articles that are presented by heads of various departments in the government or introduced by the executive the executive council. And during that internal regulations, the council members try to fight against this. They try to say, no, we need to do more. We're more than just you know a rubber stamp. And they're overruled by a you know a declaration from the throne by Abdullah saying that's not the case I don't you know basically I don't care about the resolution you just passed here are the rules you have to accept and then they do but in the subsequent first council session there's these very open hotly contested debates about who these people are how they're going to interact with this government and what they view their role should be and it's not they are either with Abdullah or they are against Abdullah or they are with the British or they against the British, they're representing their own interests and the interests of their constituents. 
you know, it very much is this extended patrimonial network. You know, Yoav alone refers to it, you know, as Abdullah being the head of the chieftaincy of Transjordan. And that still definitely plays out in these spaces. And even though there's an attempt to fight, you know, kind of the constraints of the agreement, again, it's eventually overthrown by when the British resident, Henry Cox, kind of comes in and says, you need to pass this or we're going to get someone else in so many words. They eventually do. But from that point forward, I, I frame it as kind of an opening and then gradual closing of a political space. So the 28, you know, the, the need to pass that agreement had the kind of political gates as wide open as they were ever going to be. And session after session, kind of year after year, there is a slow process of censure and of censorship and the closing of available outlets for political protest. And, you know, it's a gradual process. It doesn't go from zero to 100. But as a result, after each session, the ability or the or how willing these council members are to kind of push back decreases. So by the time you get to the fourth and then the fifth council, there's no opposition. It is purely, they are a rubber stamp, kind of the end. But that's very much a ongoing process. And I thought, as an example of kind of the role of those patrimonial networks and the role of different types of elites, the sanitation law example that I cite at the that end of that first legislative cha- council chapter, I came across that in the archives purely by happenstance, but I thought it was hugely illustrative, which was, here are these people who both agreed and disagreed with the 1928 agreement, but they all agreed that civil servants absolutely should not have authority over kind of traditional elites in Amman, that the idea that they could be, you know, fined or, you know, brought to court by they deem as lesser elites is anathema to them. And that, you know, hierarchy of authority and that hierarchy of who has say over what and for whom is really illustrative of, you know, those clashes and then that that pushing back and forth. And but also, you know, as one kind of wanes, another rises, that those civil servants will gain more authority and more say as the mandate goes on. And those more traditional elites, those tribal elites, those merchants, those um, some of the Bedouin sheikh, you know, they will still have a say in the legislative council or through other posts in the government. But their authority, instead of becoming, instead of starting as, oh, Mithkal al-Fayyuz is the paramount sheikh of the Bani Sakhar tribe, and that is like the first identity, as you go along, that is still always a clear part of his identity, but it also becomes, and how is that related to the Anglo-Transjordanian state? It's not, oh, no one can afford to be independent of the state by the waning years of the mandate period. And it's that's what I meant by that gilded cage. It's, yes, they are constrained, but they also are have their own authority reified by the cage itself. Yeah, I, I like very much that idea that um, 
you know, even as sort of political freedoms become more and more constrained as power waxes and wanes, that there is still this desire to be attached to the city and and the symbolic authority it holds. I, I certainly agree. And I wrote a book about it. I hope I agree. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I feel like I could just talk about the book for many more hours. There are so many other pieces of this argument. The chapter on Arar's poetry and that sort of existence within and outside um, of these power structures of being able to like support and critique at the same time, I think is, is especially illustrative of that argument. Um, and yeah, we could just talk about, <laughs> about Jordan for forever, but I don't want to take up all of your time. So I'll thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network to talk about your book. Once again, that is Capital Development Mandate Era Amman and the Construction of the Hashemite State, 1921 to 1946, to be published by Ginkgo Press this year. So Dr. Guthern, thank you so much for coming and discussing your book. It was really a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you. My pleasure. And the book is officially out as of September 6th. So by all means, get your copy. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And congratulations on its official publication. Thank you so much. Thank you.